you know, clearly it's got to be some combination of these two things. But uh, clearly what proportion of it is genetically driven and what proportion of it is driven by environment? I'd actually hate to put a figure on it. And we do have a couple of other scientists in the book that are actually uh, well willing to do that in terms of you know, put some indication. And I thought, well, because there's so many factors that impact on it. But I suppose my general view would be that um, clearly not everybody can be an elite athlete. So there are some genetic limits potentially on this issue. But having said that, if you spin it around in a more positive light, then what I would say is that far more people have the necessary genetics to be an elite athlete than actually become an elite athlete. Welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Path Distilled. And we're so excited today. We have Mark Williams. He's the professor of health and kinesiology at the University of Utah. Welcome to the show today, Mark. Yeah, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the invite to come and join you guys on the podcast. I'm looking so, forward to our conversation. We are, too. And so you're one of our guests who you're basically... Uh, you know, you're the one that deserves to be hosting this podcast. You've been uh, well published. You've studied sports science and high performance for so long and uh, kind of take the listeners back to where you first got involved and in, let's start with sport and maybe when you were a youth and then we'll go from there. Yeah. I mean, starting off in the, in the playing sense. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I guess like many people brought up in the UK, as you can tell by the accent, uh, I guess soccer was my passion. So um, I grew up in a, in a fairly remote part of North Wales, actually. Um, so um, I guess most of my early exposure to sport was sort of informal play uh, in street soccer, so to speak. But um, yeah, I ended up actually, I, I had some talent, so to speak. I was um, a youth and a schoolboy international. So I actually played 18 times for Wales. I was actually selected to play for the under 18 team when I was 15 and then played for uh, for three years. I actually turned down an offer to turn professional at uh, Bolton Wanderers and I guess in those days there was not as much money as there is these days in soccer. Um, I guess it could be quite a precarious career so I focused my efforts on education instead. So um, but, but I continued to play. I actually played uh, British universities and British colleges. And then I actually played semi-professional soccer, both in England and Wales, until my early 30s. And then various injuries uh, got, got the better of me. I actually coached for a while in the National League of Wales for um, four or five years as well. So, so, yeah, my background was mostly in soccer. I mean, you know, I still play a lot of other sports. I play golf, I play tennis, but... Um, uh, nothing to the same level as soccer, I guess. I'm curious, were you recruited into that development league or how does that work? Um, I guess that, uh, well, in terms of playing for Wales, there are national selection processes. So I guess I went through different trials and stuff. But um, uh, there's a very strong pyramid structure for, for soccer across uh, the UK and obviously... In England, the Premier League is at the very top, and then 
uh, as is the National League of Wales, who's at the very top in, in Wales. But relatively, I would say the National League in Wales is probably just below the professional level in England. Um, so it's, it's still a reasonable standard. Maybe the equivalent of not the MLS League in the States, but just the one below, below that. So sort of, I would I would say they're a comparable level, probably. And so, do you did someone identify you as a potential higher performer, or how did how did you get, or did you identify yourself? How did, was it tryouts <laughs> or what? Um, no, I mean, there's always scouts that go around and watch games, I guess, and then you know, one taps you on the shoulder and says, "You want to come play for us?" and and, and things of that ilk. But, but certainly, um, in terms, I mentioned Bolton Wanderers before. I actually used to go to Bolton for, uh, I went for a, at least three, maybe four years, every uh, school holiday, school vacation break. I used to go to Bolton for a few weeks at a time and train with the professionals and the full team. And, um, and then they, they offered me a, uh, an apprenticeship, as it was then at 16 years of age, and I turned that down. And they actually offered me one-year professional contract when I was uh, 18, but uh, decided against that either. It's, it's probably a good thing. I was uh, too, too injury prone. And actually, I was um, a central defender and I'm probably a little bit too short for uh, top level. I'm about, I'm about five foot ten, but, uh, you know, helps, I think, if you're over six foot in that role. Give us like a, a highlight and a low light from your playing years. Uh, Haglai, I guess, was probably playing youth international soccer. Um, I remember beating England at Norwich City's ground, Carroll Road. Um, that was my first ever international game, actually. So that's probably high. I guess the downsides are always injuries. So I actually broke my leg when I was um, 21, wow. which... Um, Lost. I lost a lot of pace, so I was I was quite a quick quick athlete. Actually, I think I ran 100 meters in 11.5 seconds when I was 15, 16, uh, and uh, I was a decent 400 meter runner as well. So I guess breaking a leg, whilst I did come back from it, I lost a lot of pace. So injuries are always, I guess, one of the big downsides of playing sport at any level, uh, but certainly if you're at a, a reasonably competent level. And so how did that, uh, what, what was your next step and how did that experience lead you to it if it did? Sure. Well, I, I, I suppose I'd always done quite well at school academically and um, had aspirations to go to university. And this was um, mid to late 1980s. And uh, at that time, actually not... Um, not too many people went to university in the UK. It was about 8% of British people that went to university. So it was a fairly elitist system. Uh, around the early 90s, 1992, 1993, the UK government, Tony Blair was prime minister at the time. He decided he was going to expand the higher education sector mm. and make it more open to more people. So now roughly about 45% of British people went to university. So I guess... Luckily, I was in that top 10% or so at that time academically and uh, wanted to go to university, didn't quite know what to study and maybe good luck or whatever. They, they started to introduce sports science degrees in the UK. Uh, the first universities launched sports science degrees around 1985. 
So um, I actually went to university and studied sports science as an undergraduate degree. I think the first group of graduates to come out of UK universities in sports science was 1987. So I graduated in 1988. And just to give you a perception of um, the growth in sports science, uh, following along with the growth in higher education in the UK over the intervening three decades, there were only three universities that offered sports science in the year that, that I uh, started to study it, whereas now uh, around 90 of the 120 universities in the UK offer sports science. Mm. And sports science, believe it or not, is now the most popular undergraduate degree in the UK, I believe. So more people, rightly or wrongly, more people do sport and exercise science as it is now than uh, physics, maths and chemistry together. Not surprising that, is it? <laughs> it could be good, that could be problematic. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So we have a lot of sports scientists in the UK. <laughs> and so you're doing undergrad. Uh, what happens next? Yeah, so I, I um, we were doing undergrad. Uh, in the UK, all the degree programs, certainly then and to a large extent now as well, were three-year degree programs. And you have to do an honours project uh, in your final year. And uh, I started reading up a little bit on anticipation in soccer. And because said I was a central defender and uh, I was very interested in how people read the game, anticipate what's going to happen. So I actually ended up doing a, an undergraduate project on penalty kicks, anticipation in penalty kicks. Um, and it was quite a good thesis. It was actually published, although not till about 1993, but it was the UK Sports Council Sports Dissertation of the Year in 1988. Nice. So, um, and obviously I really enjoyed the topic. And then, you know, didn't quite know what to do. Post-graduation, I thought, what do you do with a sports science degree? And uh, an opportunity came up to study for a PhD. So um, I thought, why not? And uh, UK PhDs are a little bit different from US PhDs in that they're research only. So in essence, what you do is you produce a thesis, which might have maybe five experiments that you might run over uh, over three, four years, as opposed to doing coursework and qualifying exams like you do in the US. So uh, I ended up doing a PhD thesis on perceptual cognitive expertise in soccer. And um, did a lot of work using sort of video-based simulation of decision-making scenarios in soccer, uh, more in outfield players than in goalkeepers at this point. And of course, did things like record eye movement data and various other manipulations that began to look at perceptual cognitive expertise in soccer. And actually, I was quite fortunate. I published seven papers from my PhD. Um, and then um, one of my supervisors while doing a PhD, actually, he uh, worked at the University of Liverpool. So there's a US connection here as well. A guy called John Williams, who sadly passed away now. But he, um, he uh, got a position in... Uh, in the US at um, Montclair State, mm -hmm. I think he went to. And uh, so he left his job and then I took over his job. <laughs> so I, I took over my uh, PhD supervisor's role. So I worked as a lecturer 
or what you would call an assistant professor at the University of Liverpool for three years uh, in the Department of Movement Science from 1992 to 1995. Uh, shall I continue on the path? Yes, please. Yeah, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you were getting started in this research, obviously your initial yeah. interest in it came from your own sport background. You know, what, what at that point, just getting started studying this, you know, and uh, exploring kind of anticipation, perception, cognition, all of those things, what did you find that really kept drawing you in to it? And was there anything that surprised you about what you found? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess as I've tried to convey, I was interested as a player or an athlete originally. And also, I'd already started coaching. So I passed some of my coaching badges at age 18. Actually, I'd, um, I used to go to the US to coach soccer mm. for what was then North American soccer camps in the mid to late 1980s and obviously I was playing soccer at a reasonable level so to some degree it seemed logical that I might be interested in, in studying uh, issues around perception decision making expertise and skill learning in soccer it seemed a natural progression uh, although I wouldn't say it was preconceived or pre-planned it's just also that opportunities arose at the right time and, and uh, I, I stepped into those and uh, I guess I had some early success, the fact that I published seven papers from your, your PhD. I mean, we all know how exciting it is when we get a paper into a journal. So I guess to have had so much success early on um, was motivating in, in many, many ways, I guess. And I guess to some degree, teaching is an extension of coaching. It's, it's about education, learning and instruction and coaching. So uh, it seemed... Uh, you know, a, a natural progression for me to take. And I still continue, as I said, to play and engage in coaching at that time. So I guess the, the different interests and focus on knowledge tended to blend in together quite well. So with those seven publications, is this when you're starting to make a name for yourself or does that come later? Or getting a lot of citations? Uh, I'm, still, I'm still waiting to make a name for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, it's funny, time flies, isn't it? I mean, that's, uh, what is it, 30 odd years ago now. So it uh, seems like only yesterday. And actually, my motivation has not waned at all. If anything, my motivation gets gets bigger. So to some degree. So um, maybe you're only good as your last paper. To use a sporting analogy, we are only as good as your last game. There's there's some aspect of that. But uh, yeah, I mean, certainly that, that motivated me. And actually, 1995... Um, I was made an offer to go and lead the science and football programs at Liverpool John Moores University. And, and Liverpool John Moores University is, um, uh, is probably in the top 10, top 20 departments for sports science globally. Certainly in the top three from a research perspective in the UK. And um, I guess what started to happen around this time, and certainly in football, is the natural progression from generic sports science degrees to sports-specific degrees. Mm. So, so football or soccer, I guess, being such a popular sport was an obvious uh, way to go. So we actually launched the first ever undergraduate degree in science and football around 1995 at Liverpool John Moores University. 
And uh, it was also a very different environment from a sports science perspective. And so you, you have to think that uh, the Premier League was launched in around 1992. And the Premier League bought huge amounts of money into the professional game. In, mm -hmm. I mean, soccer had always been the sport, but, you know, it didn't have the money that it had once the Premier League. Because obviously most of that money comes from, from television rights, which didn't exist so much pre-1992. So, um, so we've got higher education expanding. We've got sports science expanding. We've got professional sport expanding because of the investment through commercial TV rights into the sport. And prior to 1992, there were very few sports scientists as such working in professional teams. And um, it was quite fortunate to some degree because I was one of those academics who was involved at that time when, when these, this, these areas of growth were happening. So we started doing a lot of work for, for Premier League teams. And essentially, it was taking, um, you know, some of the science around particularly areas like talent identification, talent development, uh, data analytics, performance analysis. Uh, you know, they were they were big growth areas at that time. And there was not a market of sports scientists out there already at the clubs. So the first point of call for the clubs was to go to the Premier League clubs. Sorry first call for the clubs was to go to the university sector. Mm -hmm. So I led a lot of projects at that time, uh, not just with Premier League clubs, but also with the Football Association. It launched its first ever coaches association uh, around that time. And uh, it went from having no coaches association to having the largest coaches association in the world, 25,000 coaches in a very short period of time. And we used to produce a quarterly... A magazine journal called Insight and uh, in this journal there was a lot of sort of applied information around coaching and, and so on and so forth but there was also quite a bit of sports science so I edited Insight uh, for, for a decade and, and used to recruit scientists from different domains strength and conditioning, diet and nutrition, sports psychology, child development, all the different areas and we used to have maybe at least a dozen articles in each issue of Insight. So I did some work for UEFA, for FIFA, for professional clubs across Europe, you know, most of the big clubs really. So, so this was, was the big growth period. And then once uh, soccer had started to, to develop in this regard, then you had a lot of the other professional sports in the UK that, that followed that, that path as well which meant that not only were there now a lot of graduates coming out with sports science degrees, but there were also some job opportunities for these individuals in, in high performance sport. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, the, um, and some of the other guests that we've had that have brought science to the sport or other disciplines, they've met maybe not all uh, complete resistance, but they met some resistance. Did you have any experience with that? I mean, sure, it was it was slow to change. And as I said, if you were probably as working as a scientist in the 80s, early 90s, yeah, you probably got a lot of that resistance. And you still do. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not a it's not a, a golden path. I mean, there are still challenges and difficulties. And, and uh, but people generally are a lot more open minded now to sports science. And if you look at 
certainly the top Premier League clubs, they've actually got sports science departments that are bigger than most of the academic departments. Mm -hmm. So I don't know specifically how many sports scientists they have, for instance, at Manchester City. But if you told me 50, I wouldn't be shocked. If you kind of looked at all the areas of performance analytics, strength and conditioning, um, diet and nutrition, sports psych, and across the academy and the first team, as I said, it's, it's a pretty large department. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've now got directors of sports science and sports medicine at these clubs. So, um, so there's been that, that kind of uh, huge investment, so to speak. Um, so I, I guess having been there at the start and gone through that, uh, it was it was quite an interesting part of part of development, uh, and maybe coupled with that, of course, and other maybe factors that were shaping the environment as well. Of course, is the London Olympics in 2012, and uh, the government then started investing a lot of money in Olympic sports, which it hadn't historically done so. I think in um, Atlanta, we only won one medal, if I recall, certainly one gold medal, but certainly we didn't do very well on the medals table in Atlanta and, and Sydney. Whereas um, in the recent Olympiad, and then we've obviously been in the top three. So mm -hmm. went from sort of one goal to winning 30 goals. And part of that is because of this investment in sports science. So the government created um, different institutes of sports. So there's an English, Scottish, Irish, and Welsh Institute of Sport. And the English one, I think, employs 400 people. So mostly sports scientists, physiotherapists, um, and, and clearly they provide ongoing support to athletes uh, across the sports. And that was is funded actually from the National Lottery, which the National Lottery scheme is, is I know, very popular across the US. And uh, I can't remember the exact time that was launched here in the UK, but it's not that long ago, maybe a couple of decades ago, possibly. Certainly, I don't know, maybe I'm guessing this millennial uh, within the last 20 years, I would guess. So, um, so some of that funding that comes out of the lottery scheme has been used to invest in, in high performance sport. And in many ways, I think the, um, one of the positives probably from the UK perspective, having also lived and worked in the US and known some of the differences is that, is that there's much more government regulation in the UK and the government funds, certainly the Olympic sports, and certainly provides income for most of the sports. But because of that, they have, the government then has some control over regulation. So there is a necessity for each of the sports to create a coach education framework that has different levels in it. You know, there are constraints around child welfare and safeguarding, for instance. And um, so there was this big growth in coach education allied with a big growth in sports science and also probably coaches are now a lot better educated probably than they were 20 30 years ago so there's a lot of people who do sport and exercise science or coaching sciences degrees and then go and work in high performance sport uh, combining those interests with with their coaching background uh, and i guess that it's still in the us it's it's a little bit different isn't it in the sense yeah. that um to my knowledge, I don't think any of the top four American sports have a formal coach education process. You know, baseball, basketball, American football. Um, which one have I missed? 
ice hockey. Ice hockey. Ice hockey. Ice hockey. Yeah. So, 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 they, you know, I don't think they have a formal coach education system. And whilst kinesiology has become increasingly popular in, in the US and, and is quite often one of the most uh, popular undergraduate degree programs, the focus is more health based than it, it is on sport. So, so whereas maybe a sport and exercise science curriculum is not tremendously different from a kinesiology curriculum to some degree, but I think the focus, certainly from a research perspective in the US, is a lot more health and kinesiology focused. Mm -hmm. So the absence of formal coach education in a number of sports, although there are some, some sports in the US that you know, do have well-developed coaching systems, like US soccer, for instance, is... That's, but that's probably because of the influence of FIFA, the national governing body, around the need for, for this kind of... And I guess the, the soccer is, of course, a global sport, whereas you could argue that some of those top four American sports uh, are um, don't certainly have the global appeal that soccer has. So um, hence it's much more insular in that regard in focus. So all those things have had a big impact, don't you? And many academics get kind of uh, defensive is too strong of a word, but they don't like being asked this question, but you've published over 500 journal articles. Uh, was any of that, I mean, that's a high bar to reach. Was any of that strategic or did it just, did it feel like it was happening without a strategy or how did that come about? Uh, I published 230 journal articles actually. I think probably 500 publications in total by the oh. time you take into account book gotcha. chapters books and abstracts. Oh, sorry about and, that. <laughs> you've, 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 uh, He's raised the bar. Yeah, raised the bar 50%. <laughs> that means I've got to get We'll have to cut this podcast short. Um, no, I mean, I don't, there wasn't a grand design. I didn't sit down with a piece of paper when I, when I was finishing my PhD and says that I want to make, achieve this target and that target by this date and that day. I mean, ultimately, I guess my philosophy has been do as much as I can in every single day mm -hmm. so uh, I always stay busy I'm one of those people actually that um, I only feel calm when my inbox is empty so uh, you know every night my inbox is empty and then within an hour or two of me getting up in the morning my inbox is empty again so I think my, the in, my inbox runs my life to some degree but <laughs> but I guess what I've tried to do is just to keep moving forward and where possible keep moving forward more quick quicker than everybody else and um yeah i mean i've been fortunate to have worked in some great universities i've been fortunate certainly to have had a lot of good people to collaborate with and um i've been fortunate to have had a lot of phd students so i've supervised um between 50 and 60 phd students now and i've had 10 postdocs as well so um and i guess uh, that's been one of my biggest sources of inspiration to some degree. You know, I love working with the grad students and working with colleagues and um, thinking in a creative way and, and uh, you know, working together to uh, come up with novel ideas, interesting questions, both theoretically and practically, and trying to disseminate papers to, to various journals. So um, it's evolved. Uh, I would say rather than it have been pre-planned or strategic in nature. And Lauren, you lucky you were about to ask. 
<laughs> I was going to say, I, I would consider, I think, the majority of the research you've done to be very applied, right? It's very practical, as you said, like, you know, looking at anticipation, for example, all that to try and make sense of, like, how do we use this information? So what are some of the kind of key things you feel like you've uncovered in your research throughout the many years and publications that you've done yeah, that have been yeah. kind of the most applicable? Well, I mean, I've, I have had quite diverse interests and I guess my, um, my first love and maybe my main love throughout life has been the focus on perceptual cognitive expertise and um, the development of anticipation uh, and decision-making in elite athletes uh, and also in people in other domains. I mean, we've worked together on some projects in mm -hmm. law enforcement, medicine. Um, I'm working on some naval grants at the moment and um, have another grant under review on detection and diagnosis of cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the methods, measures, conceptual frameworks are the same, I guess. And there's still the strong focus on identifying expert novice differences and exploring how we can develop training programs to facilitate the more rapid acquisition of those skills. So in many ways, it's the same focus, whether it's medicine, law enforcement, military or, or sport or aviation. So all are interesting areas. But that's been probably my main area of research interest. But I've kind of delved off into in different directions as well. You know, I've published in areas related to talent identification, mm -hmm. to performance analysis, data analytics. I've published some stuff around deliberate practice and mapping out developmental history profiles. I've done some more traditional model learning work. And um, even now I think about sort of projects that I'm involved in at the moment. So I've got, I've certainly got three or four different areas. So I've got some PhD students that are doing work on anticipation and decision-making, trying to identify the perceptual cognitive skills that underpin performance. Uh, some of that is sports related, but we also have a project that's going to be starting in anesthesiology uh, shortly, COVID, setting COVID aside. <laughs> and um, I actually have a body of work where we're working with US ski and snowboard, where we're um, looking at the relationships between practice history profiles, uh, some psychological characteristics. Uh, burnout and overuse injuries and, and we've published a few papers and we've got access to large databases in that regard and then um, I've also got some grants under review and some papers that are looking at falls in older adults and we've been using virtual reality environments to create um, spatial navigation tasks for instance that are indicative of the kind of environments where older adults tend to fall in and we've been measuring gait behaviors and gaze data. I'm particularly interested in fear of falling. How fear of falling results in reinvestment of cognitive effort in aspects of movement that have previously become automated. So it's almost as if older adults revert back to an earlier stage of learning. And, and the paradox, of course, is it makes them more likely to fall in those instances. Sure. So yeah, it's all about skill, I guess, at one level, whether it's skill learning or skill relearning. Um, so there are common, a common bond there. But um, I mean, some of those directions have probably emerged by virtue of the fact that 
the availability of resources that I might have got a grant or a pot of money for work in that area. So it kind of pushed me in that area a little bit. And um, or all the interests of PhD students. You know, I might have students who might be interested in skiing or falls in older adults or anticipation and decision making. I think that drives both the activity. But I suppose I've always been fortunate being able to recruit or garner a reasonable amount of external resources for my research work over the years. Uh, certainly when compared to others in sports science and kinesiology, which is not an area that um, has as abundant amount of funding as more medical and health related areas. But um, I mean, as I said, I've, I've had work funded by professional clubs, by FIFA, FA, UEFA, uh, professional sports and uh, I've had some industrial funding from companies like Nike and Umbro and uh, I've also had some what you would call federal research funding so I've been funded by the um, Biological Sciences Research Council in the UK and the Economic and Social Research Council and then when I worked at the University of Sydney I was funded by the Australian Research Council and um, so um, I, one of the, my aspirations remains is to have had federal research funding in the UK, Australia and the US. So I have an NIH grant that got a good score recently. So I'm, I'm keeping all my fingers crossed that when I submit that we might hit the jackpot. But, um, but I'm also looking at other sources of funding related to the Department of Defence and um, performance in combat situations. I want to make sure to give you time to at least get your uh, mention your book that's coming out December 1st in the US, right? Book? What book? <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the uh, the book that's coming out. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I've actually written quite a few books over the years. This is my 18th book, actually, but um, all the others have actually been academic books. So both authored and edited. There we go. Um, this is my. Say, you're, uh, you're a true author now. I don't think yeah. that any of us, when we do academic books, considers ourselves a real author. <laughs> no. <laughs> You've made it now. <laughs> That's right. So, this is my first venture into popular science. And um, it had been on my mind for, for a few years. I'd kind of um, read a lot of similar books like Outliers and Bounce by Matthew Said and. Um, some of Epstein's books. And uh, whilst all those books were very well written, I guess I always felt that I wasn't sure that they were always true to the science. Mm -hmm. So there is an argument here that, and here's, here's a quote that I've used a few times in the sense that I think coaches and maybe journalists think in black and white, whereas scientists think in shades of gray. And probably whilst all those books are exceptionally well written, there is a tendency to uh, dramatize the science, so to speak, and to present it in a very black and white format. You know, this is it, this is what's been found. Whereas, as we know, science is never that, that clear. So um, I've had aspirations to write a book, and I thought it would have broad popular appeal. And um, I, I probably in terms of formally moving forward with it, maybe around three years ago, I thought, yeah, let's look to do this. So I actually drafted a proposal. I was working on my own at that time. And uh, there was a lot of initial interest in the book, 
on the proposal of the book. And um, I struggled a little bit because I think people thought that my writing was too academic. Mm. So, so whereas to some degree, I consider myself a good writer and certainly people tell me that I'm a good writer, but I think that's probably only for a, a scientific audience and or coaches. I've obviously written a lot of coach education stuff. Whereas if, you, if you're trying to put ideas across to a mass market, then obviously there's a different style of, of writing involved. So um, I was introduced to Tim Wigmore. So Tim is a journalist who um, is a sports writer for the Daily Telegraph, one of the broadsheet newspapers in the UK. Uh, I was, we were introduced actually by Matthew Said, who wrote Bounce and has written uh, Rebel Ideas and quite a few popular science books. So um, he thought we would be a good fit. And uh, it's been a very interesting journey in, in the sense that, um, uh, and it's been a great learning experience. So, and what I like most about the book actually is that it does, in my opinion, provide a nice balance between having a strong entertainment element to it because there are, there's a lot of biographical information, a lot of interviews with um, elite sports performers. So, Again, we didn't set out, well, well these, these are the list of athletes that we know we'll interview. We kind of evolved. Mm. And uh, maybe even Tim surprised himself in regards to the, the people that we were able to get on the book. People like Steph Curry, uh, Della Don, um, Marcus Rashford, uh, Pete Sampras. I mean, we, we've probably got a good, between 50 and 100, sort of some of the best athletes in the world some recently retired some still playing and um, the way we actually worked is that uh, I would typically draft say four or five thousand words of notes around a chapter science notes and then Tim would try and, and create a, a narrative uh, through these interviews and the biographical information around the science notes and then we'd, we'd go back and forth and uh, and, you know, we like like any sort of married couple, we had the old tiff here and there. So, um, you know, I didn't I wasn't happy with the way the science was represented. And he thought that that because uh, we tweaked it both ways. It's not I wouldn't say. We uh, I wouldn't say Tim wrote it. We wrote it together, to be honest. So um, because we did go back and forth on it a bit, but certainly he had. Um, uh, a lot of skills which I think ameliorated the book and hopefully makes it more interesting to people and um, and even in the end to be honest Tim contributed to the science you know he was coming up with um, with new science stuff that I hadn't heard of and, and pushing it my way should we include this and, and it was making probably making me look uh, more broadly at the science that I would probably not have done if I was writing the book on my own uh, and there are also parts of the book that I wrote on my own. So, for instance, the final chapter is on uh, science and innovation. And the first part of that chapter looks at um, Barcelona Football Club. So uh, I visited Barcelona Football Club last December and um, got the opportunity to meet a lot of, of their staff there. And, and, uh, and then I, so I wrote most of that. Obviously, Tim edited and provided some input. So, so it was a little bit back and forth, but... Um, my, our hope, my hope is that uh, people find it both interesting 
but also informative and, and true to the science. Well, one thing that I liked about it is you took the same approach that we try to take with this podcast and we present, you mentioned earlier, the, the seeing the gray area. And we try not to say it's all one way or the other. And we yeah. like to listen to both, um, or at least present both sides of the argument that have been presented in the past. And you've done a great job uh, doing that. I think uh, even within the topics, right, I was glancing through the book that you sent, you know, the copy you sent us and the one chapter part of a chapter focuses on kind of ownership, right, and how there's a, obviously it ties to kind of self-determination theory, right, like needing to have agency and all that. And it's, that has always been so fascinating to me, whether in the sport world, in the business world, that that is, a, to me, an epitome of where you see that black and white kind of mentality that we have as humans when we don't necessarily get the science, right? Like hmm. I either tell people what to do or I don't. <laughs> like, yeah. And you've seen yeah. it in the business world too. It's like, yeah. oh, we've yeah, gone sure, this right. complete yeah. flip flop from how it was to now it's all about employee engagement. Oh wait, that didn't work, you know? Like, yeah. Well, if you, there's always a saying that goes, if you hang around long enough, things always come back round again. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean the book, Oddly enough, perhaps not surprisingly nice, that reflects 30 years of work in research and, and in, in higher education. I mean, um, just trying to think quickly. Uh, certainly, off the top of my head, my research is mentioned at some point in at least two thirds of the chapters, if not more. So, um, so these are all topics and areas of interest from my perspective so again for your listeners the book is really split into three sections so the first part of the book looks at um, some of the environmental and cultural influences on the development of expertise so we cover topics like um, the role of family and siblings uh, where to be born uh, when to be born through the relative age effect process um, and then we talk about the importance of street sport in the development of elite athletes and then we we talk about talent identification and whether there are any early markers of talent or not so the focus is on culture environment system structures and then in the middle section uh, we shift our attention towards looking at some of the key adaptations that occur as a result of prolonged engagement uh, in practice so the opening chapters look at as I said, the topics close to my heart, like the development of anticipation, decision-making skills, game intelligence, you know, why athletes are so super intelligent in their own domain. And we look at, for instance, how athletes can uh, strike a ball in sports like baseball and cricket when the ball's traveling in excess of 100 miles per hour. So again, that, that's anticipation in, in sort of interceptive tasks as opposed to, to invasive team sports but again it's important then we look at um, deception and disguise and uh, and then we shift a little bit to looking at some of the psychological characteristics that underpin expertise development so we look at factors like uh, passion interest motivation uh, mental toughness grit resilience and uh, and also talk about how some of those psychological characteristics are important important in avoiding choking mm -hmm. uh, and being able to perform under pressure 
And then there's some chapters that go in slightly different topics. There's one chapter on teams, expertise in teams and what that means. It's one of those areas that I haven't done a lot of research work in myself, if any. But it was interesting. So that was, uh, Tim was keen on running that chapter. I wasn't keen on it to start with. But, uh, but I think it turned out all right. And we actually found more science than we thought we had. So that was one that I had to dig around and um, get some input from people who are more familiar with that team expertise literature. And um, how to win a penalty shootout. So um, England, of course, have, have not had a, a successful history of penalty shootouts in World Cups. And they actually won their first ever penalty shootout in the last World Cup. So there's a whole chapter about that. But it, but it sounds like a fairly abstract topic, but it's not when you look at the detail of it and the research work that underpins it, actually. There's probably you know, a lot of information there that may be relevant across a number of different domains around preparing for, for performance. And then in this, in the last, last section, we, um, we shift more towards practice and instruction. And uh, there's a chapter in there on deliberate practice, uh, which was probably the hardest chapter to write in the book, actually. Uh, it's quite a difficult topic to get across the key sentence there and uh, I was fortunate as we know sadly Anders Ericsson passed away a few months back and uh, Anders was very helpful in commenting on earlier drafts of the chapter so um, I managed to get his input uh, thankfully before he passed away but um, and then there's a chapter in it on um, coaching and how there's been the shift towards less prescriptive approaches mm -hmm. to coaching more learner focus coming back to your analogy about business later on. so a shift away from environments that are heavy on instruction mm -hmm. uh, specific blocked repetitive practice of skills and, and heavy on feedback to environments where uh, the learner is empowered to take more ownership over the development of key skills and, and I think probably if I kind of look at most of the podcasts podcasts that I've been on over the last few weeks I think we suggested that the, this, the book is out in the US on the 1st of December but it's actually been out in the UK since the end of August and, um, most of the podcasts have done which is quite a few they, there's been a strong been, mostly been coach-based podcasts and there's been a lot of interest around deliberate practice and, and you know what is effective practice and instruction um, so thus far, I would say those areas have attracted most interest. And then the final chapter looks at technology. So we we look at the innovation hub in Barcelona and how they're putting uh, cutting edge sports science, sports medicine research into practice. We look at the developments in virtual reality technology and how that's mm -hmm. being progressively used more and more in high performance sport. And we look at some neuroscience issues. We look at sleep and how neuroscience research can perhaps help contribute greater knowledge and understanding to the way expertise is developed. So uh, so it's a very wide ranging book. And, Represents um, your wide range of research interests. <laughs> yeah, yeah, abs uh, uh, absolutely. So um, yeah, so I, I, I think, it, well, my hope is it'll, it'll appeal widely. I, I think it, uh, I think scientists will find something in it because of the fact that it's true to the science. And I think they'll, they'll sit okay with that, I hope. And uh, coaches, athletes, 
shopping material in it for parents. So it's kind of pitched at a level that will appeal quite widely, we, uh, we hope. Sure. And going back to the my comment earlier, and kind of building on what you just said, I think the like in, you do a really good job if like the you discuss the ten thousand hour quote ten thousand hour rule and why it may not be actually a rule and um, but just because someone does it before sooner or later uh, before ten thousand hours or even if it takes longer, you know you talk about the subtleties of what that means and then uh, generalization versus specialization you talk about you know, with the subtleties and understanding it, and I don't want to give anything, I want them to go check the book out, but I think you do a great job of like unpacking a lot of the issues that have come up as this field has evolved, and you kudos for that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that was, uh, just to take that topic you mentioned there, I mean, I mean, clearly there is some support for um, specialization, there's some support for diversification, there's some support for early engagement, uh, and ultimately there are strengths and weaknesses with all of those approaches uh, and the question of which one is best is really very context athlete and sport dependent so um, maybe the problem that I've had with some books previously is they might take a stance whatever that stance would be and just say, well that's the way it is uh, and then and then obviously as a scientist will go well no it really depends and these are the factors that influence that and um, hence is that difference again between wanting not if not necessarily for a sense of sensationalism but I think the tendency in a lot of these popular science books to just take a very black white definitive view on it and, and often when I used to read or listen to those books it's well no you can't say that you just can't say that you just can't Shame. I was once told by uh, stu <laughs> students of mine years ago that if I ever wrote yeah. a book it should be called it depends because that was my answer yeah. to everything <laughs> yeah 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 and of course the scientists I guess when providing feedback to coaches that's always a problem as well in the sense mm -hmm. that um you know we can't just say well this is the way to do it what you can say well these these this is what the science tells us this yeah. and i guess you you probably at some point you have to come down and be somewhat authoritative mm -hmm. uh, even if you take these contextual issues into account you know if someone came up to me from a sport and said well if a soccer coach came up and said well which one is it then then i'd probably give a definitive opinion of what i thought uh, but that would might not be the same answer if it was another sport Mm -hmm. you know so um it varies it depends and so i mentioned that i didn't want to spill the beans too much on what's in the book as far as you know i want everybody to check it out on their own but uh, we do ask every guest what their stance on nature versus nurture and i know you address it in the book but can you just give us an overview of what your view is on uh... yeah it depends no. <laughs> <laughs> um... well you can almost the way you described and I'm imagining it was intentional, but the way you described how you've organized the book a bit, to me, gives a sense of your answer on this. I'm curious what you said. Yeah, or, or, or of my waiting on the issue. So in the sense of, uh, you know, clearly it's got to be some combination of these two things, but uh, clearly what proportion of it is genetically driven and what proportion of it is driven by environment I'd actually hate to put a figure on it. And we do have a couple of other scientists in the book that are actually uh, well willing to do that in terms of you know, put some indication. And I thought, well, because there's so many factors that impact on it. 
But I suppose my general view would be that um, clearly not everybody can be an elite athlete. So there are some genetic limits potentially on this issue. But having said that, if you spin it around in a more positive light, then what I would say is that far more people have the necessary genetics to be an elite athlete than actually become an elite athlete. So a lot of it is very much dependent on opportunity, uh, access, access to high quality coaching, uh, being in the right location, being born at the right time. So there is a huge element of serendipity to this. Um, so, but the, you know, these factors will, will always over. And there are lots of things that we really don't know the answers to in regards to, for instance, we don't know. We know that uh, we have certain predispositions, for instance, towards certain psychological dispositions. But we don't know to what extent these psychological characteristics are genetically determined and to what extent they're shaped by the environment. Some people argue that the heritability estimate may be between 30 and 60% for these psychological characteristics. And it depends on how you look at that, doesn't it? I mean, you know, some people might look at that and say, well, I told you it's all about genetics. And then other people might look at that, well, I told you it's all about environment <laughs> because that's 40 to 70% of performance that's shaped by the environment. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, these things interrupt. But what we really don't have, I guess, is, is sort of a lot of longitudinal research that looks at how a lot of these characteristics change over time and to what extent they're shaped by engagement in different types of activities. And even, of course, something as simple as, you know, once you're presumably selected into an elite training program this notion of how efficiently do learners develop new skills in the sense that you know uh, all three of us might have a thousand hours of practice on a particular task and, and obviously we don't really know to which one of us might learn more efficiently mm -hmm. even though we all three of us might come into that situation with different experiences different genetics different characteristics but, you know, we really can't predict accurately. Uh, and really, we don't have any longitudinal research that looks at it, which of us might learn more efficiently in that environment. And, and clearly, whilst the, um, the quality of practice has a big impact on, on the amount of learning, I, I don't, you know, I don't dismiss the fact that there are probably some genetic influences as well, of course, in the sense. But the thing is, at the moment, the research is not sufficiently advanced enough for us to um, to be able to identify what those genes are. And it's probably going to be a collection of genes anyway that, that, that interact in a dynamic manner rather than one gene moving forward. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are some people who suggest that clearly genes can, can be used for talent identification. There are markers that are related to performance. But in many sports, you know, we can't even measure performance. So if you can't measure performance, how do you know which genes predict that performance? Because if you look at team sports like basketball, for instance, or soccer, if you look at soccer, for instance, well, who's better, Messi or Ronaldo? Well, you know, there's, a, there's an element, although we can garner as much data as we want about aspects of performance, there's still an element of subjectivity to that. And it's where the science interacts with the art. It depends on which type of player you prefer. They've got slightly different styles. So, um, because we can't therefore accurately quantify performance. I mean, it's easier in sports like the 100 meters dash or 
or shot put or javelin throw, but in a lot of these team sports, it's hard to measure performance. And if we can't accurately measure performance, how do we know which genes are going to predict what aspects of performance? Also about not really actually always being able to define expertise either, right? Like what yeah. is an expert in some domains? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting actually that, uh, you know, I, I love Anders. I had a huge amount of time for him and he was probably... I think I've said this a few times before, but he probably had the biggest intellect of anyone that I met, actually, and, and his ability to engage one in, in philosophical thinking about you know, bigger picture issues. Do you remember the That's first amazing. time you and I met, Mark? Do you remember that? That um, it was I, I'm in... going to have to say no here. I'm sorry. Okay, so <laughs> it was in the research lab, and I had just yeah. started working on the project you guys were already working on okay. with the police officers, right? The interviewing yeah. them for the stressful okay. calls, right? Yeah, of course I remember that. Yes. I do, actually. Now you okay, <laughs> so, but if you remember, truly the first time that you and I met was yeah. when Kevin, Paul, and Dave all said that they couldn't come to this meeting where we had to update you and Anders okay. on what we were doing for the project. So it was left on me to do okay. this. And okay. I remember sitting in the room with the two of you going, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I can't even understand what they're saying. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that was quite often, wasn't it? I mean, I mean, Anders used to stimulate thought like no one other, but uh, <laughs> I actually thought that he and I made a good combination because then I would listen to him for a long time. And, and then I think I would be able to say to people, this is what he means. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, because to some degree with Anders, he, he was probably the opposite to me in many ways, actually, in the sense that there was never a study that was perfect enough to actually be run. So there was always a debate about shifting and, and, and you know, changing the design in some shape or form. Whereas <laughs> my approach would, well, yeah, whereas, whereas my approach would be, let's get it done. Let's get the data done. Let's get it out there. Uh, and I guess I've always had that philosophy. So I, I thought we were good for each other in that regard, actually. Um, but, but interesting, even, you know, before his, his sad passing, he and I were exchanging emails about um, first the notion of doing a book together, maybe a revision of expertise in sport, the book that he edited mm -hmm. with John Starks. But, um, but also I sent him draft material from, from the book and uh, we had a lot of debates around what is deliberate practice and what is the difference between deliberate practice and purposeful practice and mm. why do you need a coach to be present? Uh, and I'm saying, well, the model learning literature says this handles. <laughs> it seems to be a bit conflict. Well, the model learning research, is, I, I, I won't do his accent, but he used to the well a bit, didn't he? I move his head slightly, well, the model learning research is not with expert athletes. So, um, so it was always fascinating. But one of my last correspondences with him actually was um, when I was reading the galley proofs for the book. So this is early summer. And um, I, sent, I said, Anders, thanks for your input on the book. Here are the galley proofs if you want to have a look through. And uh, I actually said to him, would you mind providing a pull quote for the, for the front cover? Uh, in typical Anders, because didn't like to offend anybody, and he came back and he said, um, "Yeah, nice book, very well written." He said, "Very easy to follow, very entertaining, but it's very controversial." <laughs> and I was like, "Really? <laughs> <laughs> what, what's controversial about?" <laughs> I thought, but um, but I suppose thinking about it, uh, you know, I mean, clearly Anders was not the strongest component 
proponent, for instance, for the role of genetics in mm -hmm. lots of deliberate practice. So the fact that I would say, well, you know, we're not sure in what proportion of mm -hmm. nature and nature now they interrupt might, I guess, be controversial from Anders's point of view. But sadly, sadly for all of us, if, after his passing, I'll, I'll never find the real answer to that because he never <laughs> actually responded to my email. <laughs> Or I said, um, and I'm joking aside, because I said he was a wonderful man, and um, but he was always so positive and supportive. Anyway, that he takes. Yeah. But I would hope he he at least agreed with large parts of it, if not all of it. Well, did you ever debate Paul Ward? The book with Paul, or just generally? No, with just Paul? in generally, did you ever debate Paul? Oh yeah, I mean. Life was an ongoing debate with Paul. I was going to say, uh, if you know Paul, do you not debate Paul? <laughs> so did he ever come back and say you were the next day and tell you that you were, you were the one that was right? Oh God, no! He never did that. <laughs> so he's the only. Paul was uh, always right. He's not going to listen to this. We're going to cut this down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, listen, Paul. Paul was uh, a great PhD student and a great colleague. And um, whilst we used to argue like cats and dogs. Uh, he was brilliant to work with. Uh, well, you guys did a lot of that loved... anticipation research, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. But uh, even as a PhD student, he was very argumentative. No. But 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 that's fine, you know. I think I think um, uh, having an arg having a debate and an argument is very important. I mean, uh, it kind of um, uh, it's a it's, in fact there was a little bit of the scenario there with Anders, you know, where I said that basically. Anders would go on and on and he took a lot of material and then and then I'd say, well, this is what he means. I think there was the same with Paul as well, actually. Paul had some great ideas, mm -hmm. very bright guy. And, um, and I'd kind of listen to Paul and say, that's a good idea, Paul. That's going to be my next paper. Paul used to hate that, I guess. He probably still does. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it reflects the fact of, of how people bounce off each other, I guess, in that, in that book, Paul and Anders very creative thinkers very opinionated but but also a lot of great ideas and stuff and but at the end of the day it also helps um having a what they might call a postman so someone who delivers and i'm not saying that they don't to be honest i mean they do and there's obviously had a great track record and paul has got a very very good track record as well so um but i i think enjoyed working with both of them both very bright people and um, and at the end of the day we'd always have a beer or a, or two in the bar afterwards sure well one reason i asked is uh paul was the only or anders was the only person i saw ever saw paul go uh back to the next day and say you were right they argued they debated it was always a debate never an argument but they debated for it seemed like eight hours one day and paul <laughs> left kind of uh ready to prove yeah. him wrong. And then the next day he went back and told Anders he was actually correct. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I never did that to me. I don't think, I think, I think I was always wrong, but I, I'm so, and I, I still, unless you've got that recorded, I still don't believe it. Don't believe it. I think, I think Paul would have gone back and said, Anders, you may have been right under these conditions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that does sound like Paul. Yeah. <laughs> true. true. Uh... Got to be a qualifying statement in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So did anyone ever follow the 20-month-old that was signed to the football club? Did he become a success? Um, yeah, I remember that story, but I, I can't remember the specific detail of it now. Although, interestingly, in the book, actually, the chapter on um, talent identification focuses on Freddie Adu, part of it, the early part of it. If you recall, 
he was the biggest thing ever to hit American soccer uh, at that time when he first broke onto the scene and, and, and you know, he was meant to be the savior of US soccer, but um, he, uh, he never quite did that. And um, well, I, I think he went through various clubs and then drifted out of the game, although I'm sure it might have read something recently that he's back playing somewhere again. But, um, you know, he had what a lot of people thought was talent at a very early age. Uh, but that talent didn't materialise, didn't develop, or maybe the environment wasn't right to, to bring out that talent. I think that's always been, I think, one of the most fascinating things to me, right, is I think we always look at talent expertise as like a place you arrive at, and it's always yeah. been this very internally focused, right, like, do you have what it takes or not? But we see that environment plays a role. Like how many, you know, I think football is a good example of that. How many football players arrive, you know, onto the pro scene and are expected to be these amazing, do amazing things and they don't. Mm. And then maybe their career kind of fizzles out for that or maybe they switch teams and then they become that, you know, great player that they were before. So maybe there's environmental things, things yeah. change over time. Like I think Tiger Woods is a good example of that, right? Like. He had such a great career. People called him talented, but if you look at his, his history, I don't know that you can see just that, right? But then mm -hmm. there's this whole career that he has to have, right, of yeah. Yeah. maintaining that, sustaining that, dealing with the ebbs and flows of that. And I think that that's, that's so fascinating, right? That environmental piece, but also that it's not a place you're just trying to get to, but an ongoing thing you might have to continue to try and stay at or achieve further and further. Yeah, sounds like you're describing an academic career as well there to some degree. <laughs> yeah, but, um, any career. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that um, the key issue perhaps is that development is non-linear and that it's not just a steady straight line. Sometimes there are ups, sometimes there are downs, sometimes there are troughs, sometimes there are great periods of performance, I guess, and, uh, and that's probably the same in life, I guess, but it's dealing with those ups and downs that uh, is important. Maybe some of these psychological skills, again, grit, mental toughness, motivation, resilience, are um, some of the key factors. You know, in sport and in practice, of course, we talk about issues like desirable difficulties and challenge points, which are um, things about the coaching environment that could be manipulated to create suitable challenge and avoid this uh, concept of what Anders referred to as arrested development. But, but I guess you could say the thing about business or other professional domains and about life more generally, I guess. It's uh, never, never a smooth path and um, our ability to deal with the ups and downs, I guess, is what marks us out, whatever our focus is, whether it's personal life or, or professional life. I think also, right, societal changes. I mean, you talked about, you know, technology being the last part in your book, but also just in general, I was... I have to look into this research more, but I read something very brief the other day that one of the original authors who looked at, you know, multidimensional perfectionism, right? Self-oriented perfectionism versus other oriented versus socially prescribed has mm -hmm. worked with another colleague to look at the, the changes in this across generations. Mm -hmm. And apparently they've found that there has been a 30% increase in socially prescribed perfectionism between, I think it was 1989 and 2016 and only okay. a 10% increase in self-oriented perfectionism. So okay. 
sounds like we're becoming a society, right? That is more and more focused on, I think others have really high standards for me, not just I have high standards for myself, which is yeah. interesting to consider, right? As society shifts and changes, how our mm. approach to dealing with things also might need to change. Mm. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And even, I guess, the situation at the moment with COVID, I mean, uh, you know, who'd have thought that three of us would be on a Zoom call 12 <laughs> months ago? I don't think I'd heard of Zoom. I don't know when it was set up, but I, don't, I certainly <laughs> hadn't used it pre-COVID. But now it, it runs our life, doesn't it? I mean, I've had mm -hmm. meetings all day with different people, work, podcasts, you guys, and all sorts of stuff. And uh, I think um, I must live in Zoom. Yeah. Uh, I suppose a lot of people think in that way. So it's been, it's been a great change. And I kind of wonder to some degree, whilst I am sure that things will come back to normality, whatever the new normality might be mm -hmm. over, I'm, I'm going to say months, coming months rather than coming years. But, <laughs> um, but, but I guess there might be some things that we've taken up because we had to, like Zoom, for instance, uh, or this kind of interaction through the internet, whether it's Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever software you're using, that, that maybe should be a key part of our lives moving forward. Mm -hmm. this, this notion that... Um, you know, I'm in the UK at the moment, so you guys are in the US, or normally I'd be in Park City, Utah, I guess. But, but the fact that we have this ability to interact in this virtual world now uh, might have a significant, quite a significant impact on uh, education, training, essentially the development of elite coaches and um, elite athletes moving forward. It's actually a great, great platform for coach education, isn't it? For instance, mm -hmm. which. Uh, maybe has been underutilized this far. Sure. Do you have time for one more question or two more questions? Uh, go on, we'll go for two. <laughs> but don't forget, I've got a steak dinner coming soon. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm asking. The steak is uh, getting cold. <laughs> yeah, it's 7.30 7 in the evening here in the UK. But go on, I'll, I'll give you two, as so long as there's only two. Okay, so um, what do you view as the keys to your success? Uh, keys to success, motivation, probably. Someone once said to me, and he was a, he was a very well-known academic, neuroscientist, actually, and, and uh, well, actually, he told someone else that I was the most driven person he'd ever met. So um, I won't say I'll disagree, but I think where that motivation comes from, I don't know. But but in essence, I still remain, as I said earlier on, probably as if not more motivated now than I was. In fact, someone someone came up with the notion of early retirement the other day, and I think I, I sort of went pale because um, I still think I'm starting off on my career. And uh, the fact I've got grey hair and a grey beard makes you think that I'm closer to the retirement age, but I, I don't see that. And actually, the notion of retirement I actually panicked me a little bit mm -hmm. in the sense that... Um, I felt, oh, I've got so many other things to do, so many <laughs> things that I, you know, I'd like to do and to achieve. So um, motivation is probably the single biggest factor. Maybe it can get you over, uh, you know, a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about ability and capacity, I guess. It's being able to apply those skills consistently in the right manner. So there's an element of deliberate practice to that. Nice. And what's the biggest takeaway from your story? From my personal story or from, or from the story of the book, so to speak? Uh, from your story, personal. <laughs> Biggest takeaway? Um, I think as I've got 
older, I'd like to think I've got more time for people. So I would think that certainly when you're building a career and your focus is very much on achieving things, and I think that's important, but I, I think maybe uh, getting the balance in terms of, um, you know, interacting with people a little bit more is quite important. And as I said earlier on, I think in that regard, uh, obviously that there's family and friends from a social perspective, but from a professional perspective, the interaction with PhD students, postdocs, undergrad students, people like you, I think it's, it's very enriching to share ideas and knowledge and passions. And um, it's all part of the process, I guess, of, of working in a collegial dynamic manner to try and develop your skills. So uh, tricky questions there, Kev. I wish I hadn't given you two more now. <laughs> I was going to say, he was probably wishing he hadn't said yes. <laughs> I, I, feel, uh, I feel like I should be horizontal on a couch at this point. <laughs> well, Professor Mark Williams, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us and I hope everybody will check out your book. Right. My thanks, guys, and uh, good luck with the show. And great to see you guys again after at least a decade or so, as we discussed at the start. It's been a long time. Yeah, good to see you. Path is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by the Path Distilled, all rights reserved.